What do you think about uh, student debt, Marshall? Well, that's what I have the Sirota podcast about. Um, yeah, I figured. I, I think that the, I mean, the question is sort of like what politically does the policy signify? Because mm-hmm. I think the proposal as structured is going to be struck down. I guess that's the conclusion that I've come to based on the powers that they're claiming. Um, and you could argue that that's kind of no matter that that's what would have happened no matter what they did. But if they were serious about, you know, making sure that student debt was canceled, what they would do is then like reimpose the repayment pause. So that if the judiciary is like, you don't have the power to cancel student debt, they would say, okay, well, we're not ending the repayment pause, but I doubt they're going to do that. So my cynical prediction is they'll get, you know, there'll be like a stay on implementing the cancellation. They'll end the repayment pause anyway. In years, some judge will say, you didn't have the power to do this. And they'll be like, oh, I guess we have to do a new version of IDR, which is what they wanted to do all along. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I wonder I mean, what the, the, the... On paper, if, if the entire policy that was articulated the other day is implemented, basically you've got the out and out cancellation of 10,000 plus 20,000 for Pell recipients. Right. That like takes care of the low dollar borrowers. And then the new IDR plan is way more generous than the existing ones for high right. dollar borrowers. Uh, so you could say like, okay, well, it's, you know, politically toxic to help high dollar borrowers. So, you know, here's a way of hiding the ball basically. Yeah. Is that actually true? Is it politically toxic to well, I mean, that I, I don't see why. I mean, I think that the politics of canceling $50,000 of student debt is the same as the politics of canceling $10,000 of student debt. Yeah, I agree. But, it's, it, but they're going to call you, they're going to call you whatever, yeah, pinko commies, yeah, whatever you right, do. I yeah, mean, yeah. Yeah. You might as well just go. Well, I mean, and, the thing is, you might as well go hog, help, whole hog yeah. if that's what you want to do. Obviously, that's not what they want to do. So right, this, right, that's that, why right, they're right. doing they don't this. Wanna, yeah. They don't want to cancel anything. And the higher ed people don't want any debt to be out and out canceled because they don't right. want the gravy train to end. So IDR is a sort of agreed upon way of keeping the gravy train going while you don't actually collect any of the loans and certainly I mean, the ones that, that account for the majority of the outstanding balance. Right. I mean, my concern is it basically doesn't keep, I mean, it ba- this basically seems to even maybe even more make the gravy train go in the sense that it doesn't really address the problem. It just sort of fixes the back end. I, of you it. know, I sort of disagree with that in the sense, like if, suppose they didn't do the, the out and out low dollar cancellation of 10,000 and 20,000, but only implemented the IDR plan. That sure. would be, that would be more in the vein of keeping the gravy train going. I don't agree with the interpretation that says, won't this cause people to increase tuition even more? People, the institutions are already increasing tuition. I mean, just like literally we had our our faculty retreat a week ago today, we have a new dean, she came in and it was actually kind of interesting because she was more forthcoming than high level academic administrators usually are about her her conversations with the president of the university. Um, And, you know, everything from the president was basically do X, Y, and Z that will increase the student loan balances of of your students that are unrepayable. And it's like, that's the status quo. So the idea yeah. that like, oh, we have to cancel this vast swath of debt is, if anything, weighing against that political status quo, because it, because that's what creates the the blowback in, in yeah. politics and in the press. Well, I guess I would just argue maybe it's just sort of neutral because it doesn't really say anything as to the underlying condition. It just addresses the symptom. You know, it, it could have a minor effect one way or the other. Well, I mean, well, the minor- I guess I guess the way I would sum it up is if, if, we're, if all we're doing is addressing symptoms, this is a way of addressing symptoms that 
highlights the political necessity of addressing causes more so than the way of addressing symptoms that the sort of policy establishment prior to the movement for student debt cancellation would have wanted to do. Like that was uh, so, that that was so about sweeping things under the rug and muting any sort of like political impetus for reform of higher education. I buy that, but I think, I mean, I think you could also basically, we don't know how it's going to unfold, but I think you could reasonably forecast that it could unfold in a way that basically says like, all right, well, this kind of fixes the, the most negative effects of this problem. We're just going to keep doing what we're doing because they're not actually addressing the problem. And if it actually, you know, once it gets to such a choke point, we know that they're going to, we know at this point, they're going to resolve the symptoms. So at least you know, we're, we're yeah, not yeah, going to... Right, right, right. So, you know so I, mean. I mean, I guess this makes me a heighten the contradictions guy, but sure. I would say if that's the reaction of higher ed uh, administrators, which should, could well be, and say legislators and so on, like right. that, the, you know, the sort of political tension just mounts with each iteration of this. So I think like the status quo, there's all you know, $1.7 trillion of loans that's not going to be paid back. You know, they are kind of already in the space where they're, you know, just enjoying the fruits of the gravy train without any political blowback. And right. insofar as you inject uh, periodic outright cancellations of debt on top of that, you're creating blowback for them, I think. I mean, this is why, like, when I first yeah. got into student debt cancellation in 2018, the politics on the Hill, at least, were very different because um, at that time, all the institutions were lined up against free college, which they got their way on, you know, right. not free community college. Um, and the, the higher ed institutional lobby was not opposed to student debt cancellation because basically in terms of like raw dollars and cents, they don't have any skin in that game. They've already right. been paid. They don't care exactly. whether the, the loans actually get canceled or not. It's like, okay, the student's out the door, they're gone, whether they have yep. a degree or not, you know, that's the government's problem. And then as this movement for cancellation has kind of mounted up more and more, the institutions have become more and more opposed to it because of the exact political blowback that they foresee. It's like the day after student debt is canceled, there's going to be congressional hearings about why are we originating $100 billion of student loans that everyone knows aren't going to be paid back every year. Like, right. you know, and as I said on Twitter, like I look forward to the congressional hearing where a university president who earns a million dollars a year is asked what share of the borrowers from his institution actually have repaid their loans. It's a, it's a good table setter to the talking about scams. scams. Talk yes, about yes, yeah, yeah. yes, very much so. Very much you so. Know, the thing that I think is interesting about scams, which is what we're going to talk about, is that, you know, there's the low level kind of scams that I'm sure we'll discuss where it's like because of the way the architecture of the Internet has been like created, you know, it's just possible to steal everything you own. And so there's always people trying to do that, like every third call you get, every third email you get, you know, even sometimes like physical mail you get or like people who come to your door. That's what they're trying to do, which is like kind of a low level scam in that. But, you know, like. It, the scams go all the way to the top and there's a lot of institutionalized scams. And I think student loans and like the in higher ed and just sort of how the economy has been uh, oriented around like education or whatever, it constitutes one of those scams. One of the things I find really interesting about that is, you know, um, it's still when somebody gets scammed, like, you know, they lose all their money because of uh, somebody hacks their bank account or something like that. You know, people feel roughly sympathetic about that, I think. But, you know, some of these more institutionalized scams really aren't seen as such. And people who get scammed, you know, for instance, having $200,000 in student loans or whatever, there's, you know, there's there's some people who are sympathetic, but like a lot of people aren't. And I mean, a lot of people in my situation, which is that I had student loans and I paid them off as quickly as possible, you know, just like all these bootstrap uh, Megan McArdle types on the Internet. Uh <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, I feel, you know, my, my whole thing is just like, I, I can't countenance seeing everyone else in my cohort and my, uh, you know, who I went to school with, who I know, who are my friends, who weren't in quite as fortunate a situation as me to be able to do that. Um, you know, both because I got good jobs and everything, but also because it was like, I knew that I could aggressively pay my student loans because my parents would be able to bail me out if something really bad happened. That's not something that everybody has, of course. Um, and so, you know, uh, I'm interested in like the psychology of the scam too, in, in that like, you know, the higher up the scam goes and the more institutionalized it is, the more difficult it is to get sort of broad sympathy for the people who are victimized by these scams. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that is definitely true in higher education, where it's just yeah. like the whole scam is based on slapping some uh, uh, label that has credibility on whatever you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I just I, I, I do find it a little bit. I mean, it's 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 sad, really, like in the student loan area specifically, it's like you can't have the understanding that like, OK, well, I might have made decisions that are like not, you know, that maybe I would have done differently had I known that, like, you know, I wouldn't have to pay back all my student loans. Now, the other thing is, is like $10,000 for a lot of people is not really that much of a dent even in their student loans. You know, obviously, the the part about the the change in the uh, income-based repayment is more important to a lot of the high dollar, to the high dollar um, borrowers. But it's like, you know, I probably would not have gone to two state schools with followed scholarship money and stuff like that. And, and I probably, even, even though, and the thing is, it's like, even though I did that, they like jacked up the tuition in my third year of law school and there's nothing I could do about it. Yeah. And I had to take out loans and then I had to pay them back. I mean, it sucked. I, I, I remain bitter at my, you know, educational institution for doing that to me to this day. But like, you know, I don't, I, because, simply because I was like, you know, the industrious, hardworking person who did actually like, you know, pay off of, you know, not insignificant amount of loans from my law school or whatever. I would never sit here and say like, oh, my friends who had to take out a lot more loans because they didn't get the same scholarship that I had, that I had or whatever, like, fuck them, you know, like, they need to go through this hard work that I went through. Well, it's totally different. You know, it's totally different for them. And, and like, so many people my age have just been completely ruined by this. They can't have families. They can't, you know, buy a house. They can't buy a car. They're like limited in the kinds of jobs that they can have based on like their income-based repayment or, you know, just the kind of like family structures and like lives that they want to have. I mean, it, that all just fucking sucks. And the fact that I was able to escape it, you, you know, through admittedly through, you know, some hard work and, and luck and, and also just fortunate family circumstances and everything. I can't sit here and be like, well, you know, everyone has to go through this because I went through it or whatever, you know, they're, they're not going through it the way that I did to begin with. But also it's just like it's it, it was bad when it happened to me and it's bad now that it's happening to other people worse, you know, the the student loan thing is a great manifestation of uh, like a thing I said on Twitter and other contexts, too, which is that like a lot of people view like the goal of public policy as just being there to tell them that they're good people and like to reward them for like doing the right thing whatever so like the it's a it's almost like a kind of like transactional process where like i promise to do the correct thing and to follow the correct life course and like you the government promise to reward me for it and it's like no that's just like not how it works that's not the point of public policy the point of public policy is to make people's lives better for, you know ideally and it's like and it's like yeah if you know if if your entire conception of like what politics is for is just to like is completely egocentric then yeah you're gonna have like a real hard time imagining like well why should these people get anything like i didn't get this or that like 
okay, it's not about you, right? Like, if you don't have debt, that's awesome and that's great. But like, you know, there's no reason for other people to suffer in places where you have suffered or have avoided suffering. Like, it's just like, that's not, that's not what any of this is about. I mean, I think Andrew kind of got us started in the, in the direction that I think it makes sense to go. But I, I was thinking like kind of, there is this phenomenon, I think, that everybody has observed. And Andrew, you like hinted at this, uh, but I guess we might as well say it explicitly, which is that there's been like this proliferation in uh, scams of all kinds. Right. There's uh, these there's sort of like larger scale institutional scams. And those are a little bit more difficult to talk about, I think, um, especially something like student loans where. You know, it, it's like it has this legal facade in front of it and it's very difficult to like figure out, OK, like not difficult to figure out, I guess, necessarily where like the scam is. But you have to unravel like a lot of different strands to get it like what's actually happening. Whereas there's also been this like incredible rise, I think, in like just people trying to straight up like personally scam you out of something, whether it's like spam phone calls whether it's like emails whether it's uh you know people like you trying to sell something and people contacting you with like some wild shit and you're like what, what what's going on here right like oh somebody's trying to scam me out of money um <clears throat> and and like i think that's a statement like there's something about this that is like i think indicative of both the technological reach that has become possible and but also like kind of the complete uh what's the word absence i guess of any regulatory or other framework that would prevent this from happening and this is where i think it like the connection is that you see uh the it, it's almost it's almost like a like a vision of society like slowly unraveling like you're seeing the seam come apart because this is the kind of like behavior like i mean it's deeply antisocial and in, in, in kind of every single way and you would think like okay if if we're going to do any one thing like we probably should stop like just massive fraud from happening all the time and like the fact that we can't do that is like that's a seam coming undone so i think that's a it's a it's an indicator of the times yeah i mean i, I I just don't think so the distinction that you're drawing between the sort of personal scam and the institutional one that's like as broad as society I, I don't think that distinction really holds up because I think the one enables the other um when I think you know that things that have gotten some attention like the proliferation of email or spam phone calls or junk mail even have to do with the degradation of uh like network goods so things like the telecommunication system where you know at one time there's like access to that thing is regulated and one of the basic like principles of that regulation is that if you're going to use it to screw people over you shouldn't be allowed on it and so only people who aren't going to use it to be to, to screw people over are allowed on it so you have things like uh uh, regulation of private telecoms providers and you know according to the public interest and now that we're auctioning off electromagnetic spectrum which is you know very expensive for buyers to buy but like beyond being able to pay for it there's basically you know very few regulations about what they do once they have it it's like okay well of course they're going to sell access to that to uh uh 
malevolent actors because like one big way of making money off of access to people's phones is by scamming them. And so they're going to pay the telecoms people who paid for the spectrum for that access to the telecom subscribers. Um, and I like the Cambridge Analytica scandal with Facebook was like, I think an extremely uh, uh, obvious example of this because, you know, Facebook's not a regulated telecoms provider, but like time was something, uh, an entity like Facebook wouldn't be allowed to exist. The way it makes money is by kind of getting its subscribers to surrender personal information to it on the basis of like, oh, well, it's a big company that's like providing me something that I like, which is access to my friends. So I'll tell them all about me because I'm telling my friends about me. It's like Facebook turns around and sells that access to some third entity that wants to do harm to Facebook subscribers and there's nothing to prevent that. And like, as long as Facebook's making money, that's kind of operating within the received paradigm of what a privatized communications network does. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to highlight uh, that there's one sort of confounding factor that brings together, I think, the um, the sort of the personal level scam and the institutional scam is that they both emerge from this political economy that we live in, where like the productive economy is you know, there's a lot of money sloshing around, a lot of unregulated money, but like the the amount of things that are being like like made or the amount of like real sort of physical e economic processes that are going on are really like a shadow of what they once were, especially in like sort of the, you know, industrialized, formerly industrialized, now post-industrial Western countries. So, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence, for instance, that like, you, you know, uh, the, the, so the center of the so-called like knowledge economy that we live under is, this, is higher education. We we're just talking about this sort of the scam of student loans, which basically says like, well, you know, there's this, it's the whole skills gap narrative that suggests that somehow uh, there's all these jobs, but people just don't have the skills to, to, learn, to perform them. And so we need to, you know, teach people how to code or, you know, to have some sort of place in the knowledge economy or whatever. And, uh, you know, obviously the, the, the logic of that doesn't make a lot of sense because it's like, well, if, you know, if, if coding is a relatively rare skill, then obviously it's going to be a highly compensated skill. If it's a, if it's a common skill, then it's going to be less, there's going to be more competition for those jobs or be less highly compensated, et cetera. Um, but, you know, that goes down, I think that, that, that logic extends to the whole sort of scam economy. I mean, I think like the paradigmatic example of like sort of a quasi institutionalized version of this is like the crypto scam. And the, the whole pyramid scheme of all these coins and all these, uh, you know, NFTs and stuff like that, that obviously was, and, and uh, you know, I don't think it's any coincidence, for instance, that this was like at its peak, like the bubble sw swelled to its largest size during COVID when like the, even like the sort of the service part of the productive economy was, you know, a shell of itself because people weren't really going places the same way that they were before COVID or, or even now, obviously. So, you know, in the absence of that, people have this money and what is the thing that the money goes into is, is speculation. Basically, people are all trying to get these returns and trying to change their lives through, uh, you know, crypto or NFTs or whatever, uh, or, you know, whatever the case may be, um, some kind of financial scam. And at the end of the day, of course, these, th these, these underlying assets aren't, they're nothing, you know, they're, they're fictions. Um, and unlike the fiction of fiat currency, for instance, they don't have a giant military behind them, <laughs> making sure that everyone, you know, knows that these things are like, you know, not just accepted for goods and services, but circulated as a part of the world economy or whatever, the same way that, you know, the euro or the US dollar or various other like world currencies do. So um, in that sense, you know, uh, I think like 
it's hard to separate. I think an economy in which crypto, uh, well, an economy based on this, this knowledge economy fiction that, you know, that's scam number one with all the attendant student loan debt that goes into that. Uh, that that create you know that is based on you know like a not real economy basically that you know all these sort of it's based on the fictional flow of money uh, in instruments rather than like the production of like real goods and services for the most part. Uh, there's a base in real goods and services, but that's also abstracted into these you know multipliers of all these financial instruments. Uh, that's you know that's a, a an arena for both like a big trillion dollar institutional scam like. Uh, well, quasi-institutional scam like crypto, and also these small scams, uh, personally targeted to try to you know rip off people's money in their bank accounts, which are all also enabled by the fact that like the the physical like engineered infrastructure of the internet is like inadequate to deal with um, having all this sensitive information on it. You know, it was never created. It was created with. I mean, I guess my my criticism and Jerry, you're you're more, ex, you have expertise in actual like you know uh, computer engineering and stuff like that. But basically, my feeling is that like the security structure of the internet is based on passwords, basically, which are like not not like very. You wouldn't, I don't think, in the abstract, choose to have a password based security system because there's all these limitations with it. They, you know, it's a string of characters that has to be remembered. Uh, especially when you have all these requirements where it's like you got to change it every so often, then it makes it even harder to remember. You probably have to write it down somewhere or keep a file or something like that or a password manager. Um, you know, we don't have that kind of security infrastructure in the physical world, generally speaking. We generally have like physical security infrastructure with keys and, you know, physical objects that, you know, are difficult to, to replicate and things like that for, uh, and also, you know, obviously like the threat of violence often <laughs> uh, with bodyguards and stuff like that. And like the, the internet secure, you know, because the internet unfolded in this like unregulated sort of uh, decentralized sort of way, the thing that was prioritized was like ease of use, ease of engineering really. And so now we're left with this uh, like fundamentally flawed security architecture that doesn't really mimic the things that are actually effective at security in the real world. And like, we're living with the consequences of that when it comes to, uh, you, you know, how easy it is for, you know, oh, I clicked on the wrong email. Oh no, my entire company is now held ransomware. You know, like that's, that is, it's absurd that that can happen. It's funny, right? Because the way that, I mean, everybody knows kind of that the internet came out of like ARPANET and it was a, originally like a DOD project. And then it was like, then it got handed over to the scientists and like, blah, 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 blah. Okay. All that's true. Uh, the relevant thing here is that like, I think when people were designing a lot of this early stuff, they didn't really they weren't thinking very much about security. I don't want to. I don't want to make a blanket statement because I'm sure some people were thinking about it, but it was the interop really that was kind of at the forefront of uh, of thought when all this stuff was coming together. And the question was like, okay, I am a I, I'm a researcher sitting in uh, Berkeley and I want to communicate with somebody uh, sitting in Cambridge. Like, how do I do that? I am trying to transport some data from here to there. How do I do that? How do I make a robust protocol that supports all that kind of stuff, right? So it's not that people weren't thinking about security, but I think that by and large, they were thinking about it in terms of, well, they were thinking about it in terms of two different things, right? They were thinking about it in terms of, uh, certainly in terms of passwords, right? Because that was the way that you authenticated yourself on old time shared systems. 
Um, and because so that was already built in. And on the other hand, you were thinking about in terms of cryptography. So the cryptography part is nice because you are able to say, okay, like, you know, I can prevent, for example, like, you know, man in the middle attacks or whatever, right? I can encrypt my traffic to go from point A to point B. And in principle, nobody can snoop, snoop on it and figure out like what's actually in it. And that's great. Uh, but obviously the point of compromise is still the individual uh, which has always been the case, right? Like the, you know, the old joke about how the problem exists between keyboard and chair. That's, you know, 10 times more true in security. The, the user themselves is always the uh, focal point of any actual attack. Uh, it's very hard to uh, like find holes in like cryptographic algorithms. It's much easier to find holes in human psychology. Um, and um, the idea that like you would be able to... Uh, you know, communicate with anybody uh, or, you know, send them, um, you know, send them email that was kind of built into the to the infrastructure of the Internet from the very beginning. Um, and I think that probably the people who were doing it didn't think very hard about this problem because it was not a problem that they had experienced themselves. Right. It used to be that this kind of fraud was a relatively high effort um, undertaking. And now it's an extremely low effort undertaking costs nothing to send an email. So if you are sending, you can send millions, billions of emails uh, without any, you know, without any barrier to it. And all it takes is like a very small percentage of like conversions. I mean, it's essentially the same way that ad tech works, right? It's like you don't need in order to get like some level of return, you only need like a minuscule fraction of the people who would ever see your well, it used to be ad banners. Now I don't know what the fuck it is because I use an ad blocker, so I never see an ad. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> you know, if, if you uh, whatever, you only need a small fraction of the people to click on it, essentially. Right. And the same thing holds here. Uh, you only need a small fraction of people to fall uh, for the scam. And people do. Um, and, uh, you know, even people who are extremely uh, well educated and. Uh, who are taught to, you know, police uh, themselves uh, when reading their email fall for this stuff. Um, and I don't know that there is like a technical solution that would fix this problem because it's kind of like, you know, with the Internet, especially it's just like stuff is layered on top of stuff is layered on top of stuff. And so much of that stuff is like, especially the way that browsers operate. I mean, there's, you know, whatever there's standards, but like like a browser is i mean people i think don't maybe don't appreciate this but a browser is like an entire operating system that sits on top of your operating system at this point more or less uh and so like it's just like the love the the level of complexity is mind-boggling and like nobody is going to pull apart this uh the these threads it's just like it's not going to happen and so you know to talk about like i mean yeah like you could kind of maybe make a case that there's there's some technical workarounds here and there are i mean in in some in some areas like you could for example make it so that it cost people to send like cost them a little bit of money to send emails right you can imagine like you know each email set costs like a fraction of a cent that's for an individual who sends you know maybe you know even even 100 emails right it's like nothing but if for uh, somebody who's trying to scam people and sending millions of emails now that that's starting to add up right so you can imagine fixes like that uh, but by and large, I don't, but there's no, there's absolutely no like political appetite to implement any of this stuff. Um, and other than that, it's like really hard to engineer something that would like 
save people from themselves unfortunately i think if it could have been done people probably would have come up with ways to do it and they try and some of those ways are more successful than others but uh yeah i mean like the password thing is like it's one of the it's like this is a good example actually right it's like okay what would you replace the password with well you know in the real world we have the concept of physical keys but then like what corresponds to that in the digital world is it like a is it a biomarker i mean that seems kind of sketch uh that's exploitable not maybe not exploitable in the same way but it definitely raises like issues of privacy um that you would have to be addressed um and it's it's there are ways right and, and the ways that but the ways that exist are you know so two-factor authentication is like one of those ways right that's that's been pretty like widespread that won't save you from like clicking on malign shit that got emailed to you but it might save you from somebody trying to like log into your account even if they do have your password so that's good there are other ways that are sort of even more involved that invo involve carrying like a physical uh actual like a physical token um which which are also good i mean those are good things to you know, those are good security measures, but they are really like, they're just rough for um, a majority, not rough for a majority of people, but they're just like technically involved. And most people are not, are not like sophisticated enough to, uh, to, to do it, to use it. So, I mean, even getting people to use two, two FA is like kind of a, an upward, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a challenge uh, even, you know, outside of like technical spaces. So Yeah. Sorry, this is a long di digression into uh, the technical uh, aspects of, of this problem, but... You know, Jerry, in listening to this, I feel like, you know, we've solved this problem before and the problem and the, the solution is not... A, neither the problem nor the solution is a technical one. Yeah. You know, like this idea that, you know, scams are about exploiting human psychology and it's hard to get people to adopt technical defenses against those exploitations like that has there's nothing different about that and you know about a telephone network or any or the postal service or anything like that it's just a matter of you know what's a regulatory solution or or alternatively put like what does this sort of societally shared asset what does it exist to do if it exists to make money then you're going to get people who try to exploit it to scam people and if it exists to serve some some other end then you could easily say well you know it would be very profitable for you to use the postal service to scam people but we don't want that because that's bad for society so we're not going to allow it and like then you put the, the onus is not on the individual to adopt a technical defense but rather on whoever is regulating a a, a something like the a, a shared network like the postal service you know to say like this exists for a purpose and we are going to make sure it serves that purpose and that involves making you know you're not allowed to use it if this is what you're going to use it for oh yeah absolutely i mean but uh you know it's worth pointing out that we still have like even in the like everyday non-internet world um although all of this stuff is now migrating to the internet obviously as well uh, like we still have MLM scams, right? Like that exists. And, um, you know, the kind of, I, I don't know if I'd say definitive, but definitely like a definitive um, article on this. I think we've mentioned this on the show before is like Rick Perlstein's uh, The Long Con uh, in The Baffler uh, circa 2012. And like, I mean, it's, 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 it's a good article. I recommend people read it. It like really traces the history of how like 
the conservative political movement has been like tied intimately tied up with uh, this sort of like essentially scam marketing, right? Um, that defrauds people. I mean, it is, it is straight up fraud, right? Um, but uh, yeah, this stuff is, uh, has a, an extremely uh, extremely long history, and we haven't managed to solve solve it even when uh, I think the technical solutions were more manageable, right? The scale was smaller. Uh, you had to physically send like physical materials, right? That's more difficult than sending uh, digital, uh, digital stuff. Um, and we haven't managed to solve it at that point. And uh, I am not super confident that we're going to solve it uh, now that like the scale of it is much larger. I mean, I'm not sure I agree with you that we haven't managed to solve it. I mean, I guess it's never going to be possible to ascertain like the prevalence of MLM scams over time. But you know, I do think that there's a greater prevalence now of the, let's you know <laughs> scams writ large than there was in the past. You know, because it's like these the way you know you're saying like you know you have to like physically you know send somebody your materials. Well, it's like well you have limited channels to do that, and you know it's risky to send if you're a scammer to send materials through the mail if they're going to be intercepted and you're going to be prosecuted, but not so much through the internet. Yeah, yeah, but, but but that's but I think that's what I'm saying, right? As I, I'm saying that, like, you know, like the MLM stuff, right? It's sort of it, it's it's one of these things that resides in an area I think of like relative somewhat gray, uh, you know, legality. And I, I, I'm not. We have a, we have a lawyer on staff, so you know, Andrew, maybe you can speak more to this. But like my understanding is that most of the stuff is like, you know, so is somewhat like on the like the legal side. It's like like something like Amway, right? Like Amway exists, right? We know this. Like the DeVos family, uh, you know, yeah. has yeah, yeah. a couple billion and, bucks. And, I mean, it. It, that, that, as I recall, I mean, it's been a while since I read Perlstein, but it, it, he talks about the FTC's cracking down on Amway in the 1970s as being a uh, impetus to DeVos getting involved in right wing politics designed to denude the FTC of power. Right, right. So yeah, I, I okay, fair enough. Like I guess what I'm saying is that. It's, it's not that there were, um, yeah, let me, let me try to rephrase what I was saying. What I was saying is that there are solutions, there, there existed technical solutions and the people tried to implement them and they can be effective. Like, I mean, the regulatory solutions, they can be effective. Uh, but yes, like politically, they got rolled back, right? Like for exactly the reason that they were effective. So that's, that's the thing that gives me, I guess, less confidence that this, that this can work because... A lot of this stuff, like a lot of the crypto stuff is, I mean, the uh, is much more deeply enmeshed, I think, uh, now than like the than the Amway stuff. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe this is just a bit of presentism on my part. Um, I, I had the I have the feeling that like, you know, something like Amway is is viewed as, I don't know, like sort of declassé, I suppose, uh, by people, you know, let's, let's say for my socioeconomic background. Uh, but something like crypto is kind of but um, is is viewed as like well it's just another like financial innovation and like granted this is somewhat different from uh, you know spam emails um, but I think that there is this kind of built-in reluctance to uh, I think among especially among uh, people with technical backgrounds maybe not so much now but certainly uh, ten years ago or, or even longer like there's a resistance to like any kind of regulatory oversight, right. Of the internet as such. 
Uh, so, um, yeah, like, and, and I feel like those people are much more enmeshed with the, the political system now, maybe than, than like the, uh, the people who were kind of standing up for Amway were back in the day. Um, that, to, so in my mind, that makes it harder. That's, that's the point that I was trying to make. What I was, uh, when you're talking about like sort of the legal structure of how, you know, uh, various uh scams especially like scam communications there's there's various i forget what they're all called but there's there's a there's various acts that uh where they they enable class actions basically uh for the the, they started i believe with uh uh a law that combats uh what's called blast faxing which is where you just have a list of fax numbers and then you just blast to all of them much like you would a blast email or something and then you know they just all all the fax machines print out your bs uh you know advertisement or scam or whatever um there's also uh i believe there's similar uh laws that involve blast phone calls and blast uh emails um which is why but the thing is like my understanding of these is that they don't really uh they actually mostly just make it pretty easy for like legitimate businesses to get sued for like not having an un- a good enough unsubscribe requirement and stuff like that so it's like if you're not sophisticated about like what the law says about like how your marketing emails can work then you can get in real trouble and the way that they deal with it is kind of like a, a punitive version of what jerry was talking about with you know making emails cost money it's like so the blast fact the blast facts thing says that you have to you can be forced to pay up to a fairly high amount. I think it's like $300. It might be a thousand dollars per person who got the facts. And so you end up, you know, if you, if you get nailed for one of these things, you, it could be millions of dollars in, in like your class action or whatever. And, you know, obviously cla- the way class actions are designed, generally speaking, is to get lawyers paid. And then each little person gets a pittance or a gift card or something like that. Um, that's sort of how it works. Uh, I used to be, I used to practice a plaintiff side class actions actually. And it is an important function in the sense that like you know, there's better ways to do it, I think. But like our legal framework has generally said with problems like this, the way we deal with them is that we basically deputize lawyers on the plaintiff side of class actions to find these problems and to essentially prosecute them for us. So I'm not, I'm not say, actually saying it's, you know, that it is in a way its own little kind of scam, but it, it <laughs> is actually, you know, it, it's, it's how our system is designed to work. And so, you know, you can't really vilify too much, uh, the fact that people do this because first of all there's money there and of course where there's money people are going to follow it and second of all it is actually sort of the pro-social purpose that these laws were designed with in mind um again i don't think it's the best way to like engineer that but what, what struck me actually flowing from this is with you know with with faxes with with phone calls generally speaking you know there's a there's certain physical technical limits to how many you can send uh and and, and also um the those types of scams peaked at a time before um the uh the rise of a truly global communication system and one thing that strikes me about like uh um scam emails that makes them so hard to pin down is that they are they arise uh oftentimes from other countries within a deeply unequal like world system and so you have uh you know and also let's be clear like a world system that's designed for basically the free flow of information and money but not necessarily people and so for that reason, it, it's very easy, you know, for the same reason, it's very easy for there to be a site called 123movies.xyz.ru that shows you every movie you ever wanted to see with just a bunch of anime pop-ups also. Um, it's also very easy for someone in Eastern Europe or in Africa or in Southeast Asia or anywhere really 
to uh, get a big, e you know, pay for a big email list and send these blast emails. And they're basically outside the jurisdiction of, uh, you know, that, that could reasonably pin them down um, because, uh, because basically of the way that like the shape of the, you know, world political economy works, it does, it, you know, it needs to privilege this ability of money and, uh, and ideas and information to flow around the world while also making it difficult for people to, to move around the world, generally speaking. And, and it also has created this deeply unequal uh, uh, setup where, you know, you have these developed Western countries uh, that are, you know, kind of sitting ducks for these kind of targets. And then you have a bunch of desperate people uh, and, and oftentimes, you know, unscrupulous people from the Western countries who have moved to the, you know, sort of like uh, the Andrew Tate moving to Romania to do his, his misdeeds or whatever. You know, you have people like that who are sort of, you, you know, they understand that like the way to do this is to be in, you know, uh, Romania or to be in Nigeria or to be in whatever Ukraine or whatever that, that the, the underlying, uh, like system of that is something that basically everyone who's wealthy <laughs> has a vested interest in maintaining, not because it facilitates these minor scams or whatever. That's just a, a, a annoying side effect, but because, you know, having these, these free flows of capitals, uh, and this uh, global exchange of information in order to enable things like outsourcing and whatever, and, and, and just being a transnational corporation, um, all of that stuff is like necessary to the way that like the global economy works. And so, you know, one thing that you couldn't have in the 70s uh, is this kind of thing. I mean, first of all, you didn't have the internet, which, you know, provides the technical mainframe for this to work. But second of all, you didn't have, a, you know, you had capital controls. You, you didn't have a free flow of money throughout the world economy. And I think that's something that's very important to understand about like a lot of these scams is that they depend on these, you know, they are consequences of bigger political decisions that have created a world system in which there is this plugged in subaltern, you know, <laughs> this plugged in subaltern that we have, money can move to them very easily. Information can move in and out from there very easily. Uh, but like, you know, actual like development and uh, like industry and things like that, like we've what like we were talking about before, that stuff's not coming anytime soon. And so like, this is a way to make a quick buck, which of course is what everybody's trying to do. And that's, that's what a scam is, you know, it's making a quick buck. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that narrative completely upholds the idea that all of this is contingent on a particular configuration of law and regulation, not so much sort of the technological capability to carry out a scam, because you're saying, you know, the, the regime of globalization that we live under is one that enables the free flow of capital and of information, but not of people and the transcending, the transcending of nationally delimited regulatory regimes by international information and capital flows. You know, it'd be like, there's nothing about, it's not like the internet enables scams. It's like we have the internet that happens to or have arisen at the same time as a regime that is designed to undermine democratic control over uh, public discourse. Yeah, right. And I, I do think that, you know, going back to what Jerry was saying about like, you know, I think that if there had been, I mean, one of the things that I think is interesting is the contingent way in which the internet evolved was so uh, privatized, you know, and it was so based on like m making the next stage come as quickly as possible, as profitably as possible with as much opportunity to make money as possible. And, you know, if you had a, a stronger guiding hand, uh, and, and let's also be clear that it arose in this world, you know, this sort of uh, uh, 
anarchic world system that that doesn't have you know whereas in i feel like if something like this had had arisen in the 60s or 70s in a time of uh you know obviously a, a bipolar world in the sense that there were two you know superpowers or whatever but like the 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 um it's hard for me to imagine that something like this would arise in the 60s or 70s and that it would be allowed to just sort of go without a without a at least a, a strong guiding hand to basically say like well okay look if everybody's uh, you know, financial information is going to be easily accessible from this, then maybe we should have like a physical key infrastructure built in from, you know, if not the start at like, you know, the, the, the first point when it becomes clear that something like that would be would be good. And I mean, you know, people use keys in their daily life all the time, it wouldn't be that hard if you had a little key and you just you put it into whatever device you were using, and that would enable you to you know, basically navigate as yourself through all these yeah, systems. Yeah. I mean, you can imagine an architecture that was much more strongly geared toward like difficult to spoof security uh, from the start, which you maybe, maybe not would have gotten if, you know, the internet had not arisen in this sort of like Thomas Friedman, the world is flat, everyone, you know, we just need to like do globalization because then it'll be the same here as it is in, you know, Bucharest, as it is in uh, Riyadh, as it is in, uh, you know, Vientian or whatever, you know, whatever the dream of these people is, it did not involve there being something that would that would say, ooh, this internet thing. Uh, actually, there's some things that we should probably be building into this, you know, with with uh, foresight in mind, as opposed to just being like, let's just expand this, like we're building a suburb in the 1950s, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I, I would, again, like my, my history uh, is, of this is not like com totally complete, but uh, just from I'm trying to remember when like the RSA paper was published and I want to say it was like 77, but I could be wrong about this. Um, but that's kind of like if you know anything about kind of cryptography generally, like RSA is kind of at this fundamental like turning point uh, where people were like, oh, we can like figure out how to encode like encrypt communications like i mean not that there hadn't been cryptographic work done beforehand but it was like it was like the, when the rsa results came out and they like they really showed how like pub, you know key exchange could be used to for encryption like it was a really like important moment i i think in 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 security but at the same time i think it was like it my feeling is that it would have been too much to ask anybody at that time to like kind of contemplate you know, a, a trajectory that I think no, none of them could have, uh, could have foreseen. Uh, and again, like, yeah, you could, you can imagine, and people do have, right. Like again, various physical artifacts that function as keys essentially. But, uh, it's just like, it's one of those things that is, um, kind of, I used to have one of those actually at one of um, at a previous job. Um, and like, it's fine. Uh, it works great. It's just that uh, people who, again, are not like technically sophisticated will will uh, balk at this um, as they balk at every, <laughs> you know, inconvenience. Right. It's just like it's another thing that you have to do. And if you're a person who doesn't like do that thing and you don't understand why you're being asked to do it, you're going to be like, ah, it's a pain in the ass. Like, why do I have to like, uh, you know, so like doctors, by the way, like doctors and nurses, they all walk around with these like little you know, a uh, little physical uh, RSA, by the way, speaking of like it turned into a uh, it turned into a company that actually sells the 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 key fobs. But they walk around with those those key fobs. And then when they access medical systems, they actually uh, do it by, you know, typing in this code that changes uh, every um, every minute. Uh, and that works great that, that, you know, that that tends to uh, prevent 
those systems from falling victim uh, to unauthorized access uh, when when that stuff gets implemented. Uh, so, but yeah, like uh, getting everybody to do it is just like is is very is very difficult. Um, yeah, I, I I wanted to also like say that you know Andrew, I'm so glad that you brought up like the global globalized nature of this because. I think this is something that is also especially relevant when we talk about like crypto, which is kind of like the biggest scam of them all in some ways, uh, or at least, <laughs> you know, of the of the things that people conventionally view as scams, uh, because it's it does have like this distributed globalized character that would have been impossible, I think, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, even if like nothing fundamental, like the technology itself is not particularly sophisticated. I mean, it's just it is what it is like, you you know. The, the that part is not something that is that information you know about like whatever uh distributed ledgers that has been around for a long long time the thing that makes it possible now is that uh you can do things like you know build a crypto mining facility in uh, you know outer mongolia or something like that and essentially extract uh extract wealth from either you know cheap coal or you know, surplus hydro or whatever you got lying around, uh, you know, by and large, it's uh, fossil fuels um, and turn that into turn that into money. And that's not something that would have been possible like 30 years ago. And it's possible now. And so, uh, yeah, and it's like incredibly frustrating to watch kind of the the way that like the regulatory apparatus that ostensibly is supposed to be regulating things of this nature just like sit on its thumbs and just like do nothing. I'm like, come on, man. Like everybody can see that these are like just unregulated securities. <laughs> like, what are you doing? <laughs> but yeah, but everybody's afraid. Everybody's afraid that this is some golden goose that they're going to like, whatever, they're going to kill some innovation, even though it's all bullshit. I mean, I think what they're really afraid of is that, like, this is kind of the only game in town. And, you know, like, we don't really know at this point what carving out, like, sort of the, I mean, I, I, I heard somewhere, for instance, that, like, during the 2008 crisis, like, one of the main things that kept, like, liquid money circulating was, like, you know, illegal, like, mainly, like, drug money circulating through the world economy. And, like, you know, if this is serving that same function, I think, like, all these things, you know, they serve this function of, like, the money has to move. It can't just stay. It just can't stick in one place, you know. And uh, a lot of money is moving and changing hands through these mechanisms. And I don't. I'm not sure, you know, because the the real economy is so like atrophied that like this this fictitious part of the economy. I don't know, you know. I, 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 my guess is that like you know if if like for instance if I were like the president right now, I'd be thinking like man if I go after this stuff, am I just is it is that like the the knocking out the the card on the bottom that's going to make this whole house of cards go you know belly up and then that's going to be you know the next worst version of 2008 or or 1929 or you know whatever i don't know i mean it's it seems like it's a scary place to be i i think i think a lot of people are afraid that this is uh this is something that has integrated itself so closely into like the various ecosystems of uh you know especially of silicon valley that if you kind of put the kibosh on it, it's like what other stuff is going to get dragged down with it? Like, cause that's, that's probably like a bigger concern, right. Then, um, you know, I don't know. I don't know the mind of like, well, the, I mean, that, that seems uh, weird, weird to me because like, I've never met a financial regular late regulator who thinks that crypto is anything other than a complete scam. 
and it seems i mean i guess i don't know but it seems weird to think that the reason why it wouldn't be regulated is because like you know that could take down legitimate financial activity it's more like there's lots of other scams in the financial system and we don't want to go after that one because where will we stop you know it's like more more the regulatory slippery slope than the financial one yeah maybe that's also true i don't know right um i i don't like i said i don't have any special insight into any the way that any of these people think so it could be but it could be both of those things it could be one it could be the other i <laughs> search me yeah and i was I was thinking from the perspective of like a, a you know a political decision maker, not necessarily a regulator. You know, uh, it just seems like the economy, quote unquote, is so like precarious that like you just don't know necessarily like which moving part. If you mess with it, even if it's something as dubious and you know um, purposeless as. As I mean, it's crypto. just hard for me to, it, it, it's hard for me to envision that crypto inhabits that role, you know, like that, that idea seems apt when applied to the shadow banking system that was the subject of bank runs during the Great Recession. It's like, well, sure. you know, even before and during, they didn't understand that this was basically a shadow bank that should be regulated like a regular bank, but no, it wasn't. And, you know, they basically had to uh supply deposit insurance after the fact with with crypto you know again it doesn't seem like it's so it, it's that the financial system is so interdependent it's more like on the political side and regulatory side it's like everyone who would be in a position to do something about crypto has been bribed or bought off or something so it's like former mm -hmm. sec commissioners have gone through the revolving door and are now on the payroll and current sec commissioners are thinking like okay well what's my golden parachute it probably is coming from the same source um you know so there's it's sort of like it's not that hard to buy our very atrophied political system and regulatory system yeah. and you know keep the gates open to make a killing by you know, buying off the very few key gatekeepers that there are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think that's a part of it. I guess, I guess, just from my perspective, if I were like in charge of, you know, like trying to crack down on like parts of the economy that are like antisocial or anti, uh, you know, anti-productive or whatever you want to call it, like I would be very worried about like, well, am I just touching something that is going to like send everything else in, into complete tailspin because. You know, not necessarily that like crypto is so interconnected with everything. It's just like, I just think that like the the quote unquote economy has gotten so complicated and so uh, like derivativized. And so like everything is sort of e either interconnected or e in a very literal way or like connected in the sense that like the money goes here and then it goes here and then it goes here. And you just don't know like going after this one thing necessarily if that's going to be the thing that that, you know, causes everything else to crumble. I don't know if crypto is that. I just, I just wonder if, like, if you know, for political decision makers who are like looking at the at this problem of, like, well, things are so far gone, you know, like so much of the of this, you know, the economy is like not productive, but like if we mess with it, you know, what is what consequences is that going to have? At least things are kind of chugging along, even if they're patched together with you know rubber bands and duct tape or whatever. But like, you know, I don't know. I mean, it it just it seems like a very uh, a very precarious situation, not just in crypto, but just just the so-called economy in general, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just want to make the banal point that, like, 
there is also just kind of an inherent, uh, you know, sort of small C conservatism in the sense that that is built into a lot of these institutions in the sense of like that there is a strong bias towards doing nothing. Right. You, you know, you're there for a couple of years. You're, you know, who's going to remember your like, uh, you know, your your great paper on whatever, whatever it is that, you know, you're writing about, like crypto regulation or whatever. So you have to be you have to be like a real like true believer in like the actual project to kind of do this work. Uh, and if and if this is one of those things where you're just kind of like marking time because you're maybe it's your turn to, to like ride the public service carousel. It's like, eh, I'm here for a while. Yeah, like maybe I'll get my golden parachute and or, you know, go through the revolving door or or maybe I'll just go on and do something else. Maybe it's not related. But either way, it's like if I, you know, if you stir, if you make waves, you stir the pot, it's like all of a sudden people become unhappy. All of a sudden, you know, you're, you're getting called out in front of Congress or whatever. Like, just eh. Maybe, maybe we should just continue doing nothing. So I think there's just a lot of that as well. Yeah, I mean, on, when I think about the the sort of communications network side of things, it's like on the one hand, there's huge demand for the FCC to, cr to uh, crack down on spam phone calls. But on the other hand, there's also a huge demand from the on the FCC FCC to make a lot of money from spectrum auctions. So it's like they don't want to do that much that would crack down on spam phone calls because then the bids at high valuations for the public spectrum they're auctioning off aren't going to come in i mean that i don't have any knowledge of it but that's how i feel like it's going on i mean in the, the so there was a 2017 i want to say spectrum auction or no, no no i think it was under obama so like 2015 um where like it is a documented fact that a bunch of private equity firms basically corrupted the auction so that what they were doing was um uh taking um like television broadcast spectrum back into public ownership and reselling it to uh wireless for uh, uh data um and private equity firms basically bought up a bunch of you know like old broadcast television stations that had previously allocated spectrum and then withheld you know so the auction like happens in a sort of sequential format they withheld like the early bids that should have been down the price in order to bid up the later bids when the price was high um and you know like there was the fcc like knows about this like literally the woman who was the chief economist of the fcc wrote a paper about it that was like widely circulated to economists um and you know like why wouldn't they do anything like you would think you know okay so the fcc like they're great crowning success of the last 30 years according to themselves is that they monetized the spectrum and earned a lot of money for the treasury on the basis of selling it it's like well this is like directly counteracting that so you know why wouldn't they crack down on it but like the idea that the spectrum is a publicly traded commodity in which private equity firms can speculate and orchestrate a conspiracy like that you know that's kind of like part of the mystique and if they said that it was corruptible you know then like the ideological house of cards would fall apart it's like well why are we putting this out for bid to begin with and like why not we just use it for the purposes that that are decided upon democratically. One of the consequences of the proliferation of scams and the fact that you kind of have to be on guard, I mean, you do have to be on guard at all times when, especially, you know, if you're clicking an email on someone else's, you know, like at your job or something like that, it's like, you know, you get all these, uh, you know, I mean, basically at this point, even when I get an email that looks completely like legitimate from, you know, something, someplace that I actually have an account, I'm just like, I'm not touching that, you know? 
I still answer my phone calls, but I know a lot of people don't. I mean, these are like deeply like antisocial yeah. consequences. I mean, I, I, you know, the, like there are people who will go to prison if they don't answer their phone because if it's from their parole officer and they don't right. answer the phone, they violate their parole. So like we have a system like that or the mail where, you know, yep. you can like be held financially liable for not attending to things that come to you through the mail and it's like well okay so we're just gonna like that channel that where there's this societal expectation that like people will open it it's like great that that's you know a a a gigantic open door for scammers to say like okay well you know we can easily make our piece of mail look like the thing that you're legally obligated to open and respond to you know then we're going to be able to scam people like that and to get their information and their money from, you know, that way. So it's like, if you're going to have something like the telephone system or the postal service where you, you know, make people's lives depend on this network functioning in a way that is like fundamentally pro-social and then you auction it off so that it isn't actually pro-social, like you are going to get a total degradation of societal trust and well-being. Like that's basically what we decided to do. Like the second freaking George Stigler was like, oh yes, we should auction off the, you know, and like dissolve any regulations because that's, you know, economically efficient. It's like, yeah, you're like that, that notion of economic efficiency or sacrificing societal health in order to obtain it. And here we are. Right. Right. Well, and it has two consequences. I mean, it has a lot more than two, but the two deleterious consequences that I've sort of noted is, first of all, things like public participation in surveys. I mean, it's noted that like the yeah. the the quality of public polling uh, has degraded significantly in just the last 10 years. And a major reason for that is, which ties into the second part of what I'm going to say, young people do not answer their phones and with good reason. And yes. And the, the second consequence I was going to say is, you know, the people who are most vulnerable to these scams, both because, uh, uh, you, you know, a lot of times older, I mean, it's older people, and, you know, it's, it's because older people oftentimes, you know, they have money because they, they're, at, you know, they, they went through the, the it, they lived in the richest country in the world during the, the richest century that's ever been known, the 20th century. And they also have uh, a set of pro-social practices adopted in a, a former era where they answer the phone. And they answer their email and they talk to the nice man on the phone and they, you know, they, they believe the nice man on the phone who says that he's from their bank or whatever the case may be. And, you know, oftentimes older people have, you know, cognitive decline and things like that too, so that they're particularly vulnerable or, you know, they have a uh, uh, limited social contact so that they're particularly vulnerable to people who use sort of, uh, you know, worming in and trying to be your friend as, as sort of their, their point of attack or whatever. So, uh, you know, and I'm sure that there's all sorts of other problems, you know, that when you basically, you basically take a pro-social tendency and you sell it to the highest bidder, which is what has happened with, with like the, the exact process that Marshall has been describing. Um, you say, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a societal expectation and it's like a pro-social good for people to answer their phone. Well, how can we make money off of that? And that's what's, that's what's happened. You know, it's accelerated probably since the late nineties until now, but I mean, that's been an ongoing process of the sort of deregulation era or whatever. And, um, you know, these are like consequences that first of all, have like major financial and like, you know, life well-being implications on people who fall victim to these scams, especially older people. Uh, but it also like degrades the quality of life of just living in this country, you know, um, like if you believe that like public polling is an important, you know, uh, 
service to sort of let us know what's going on in our so-called democracy, our beautiful, beloved democracy that we all know and love and totally believe in. Um, and then, you know, just like a major swath of the population just doesn't answer their phone. And so they have to be like statistically, you know, there has to be like ghosts drawn out of the statistics to figure out how 18 to 27 year olds feel about this or whatever. Um, like that just that you have traded on this pro-social good to the extent that like now it has consequences like for everyone. Now that now we know less about the world and what's going on because of it. Now, like the older people in our society are like incredibly vulnerable to uh, scams that have ruinous financial consequences and also can just kill people because, uh, you know, um, if you're old and, and something really bad happens to you, you know, that's not good for your health. Uh, so um, I just wonder if we want to talk a little bit about about these, the ways that our, our supposed society that may or may not still exist <laughs> and uh and also just sort of like a well-being are affected by by being constantly bombarded by uh, the threat of like ru ruin ruination through, uh, you know, things that we're supposed to do to participate in society. Yeah, I mean, I think it totally like I, I, I totally agree. Right. I mean, if you if you take sort of right any kind of like you, you undermine, you know, any notion of whatever solidarity or wh whatever, and then you uh, basically say okay well everybody's for themselves right then in some ways it's a very logical reaction right to that set of incentives to say okay well maybe my path forward is just going to be scamming people right like if if there's no punishment or you know no there's no mechanism that uh you know keeps that from happening and everybody's just kind of on their own then yeah like in, in a certain sense, like it's a, you know, it's a, I think it, it, it's sensible to, uh, to, to make that your, uh, to make that your MO, right? I mean, just in terms, uh, uh, when you're saying like, uh, you know, nobody answers the phone anymore, I'm thinking in the vein of the uh, student debt cancellation, um, you know, that's contingent on income. The markup had a story, uh, uh, a couple of months ago about how Facebook had basically, you know, harvested data from the federal student aid website. So like, if you know about that, and you're, you've been warned against sharing personal information on the internet in such a way that, you know, it could be taken by actors that are fundamentally hostile to your interests, such as Facebook and its various, um, uh, you know, bad actors that are that use that as a blind to get access to people's information it's like you're well you're not going to tell the department of education what your income is anymore which means you're not going to be eligible for student debt cancellation anymore you know so that would be like a reasonable outcome and it's like okay well i mean i don't necessarily think that you should have to tell the department of education what your income is to get student debt cancellation but if you think that's a good policy then the ability of facebook to harvest data from anywhere on the internet is undermining your ability to carry out that policy and so like that's something that you shouldn't tell that's something that the government shouldn't tolerate because it is uh impeding it from carrying out its function according to itself that ties into something I actually wanted to ask Jerry about a little bit, which is I know Jerry, you've you've been in on the software engineering side for uh, government entities, and like one thing that you know, obviously we've talked about how you know technical fixes aren't really a panacea when it comes to scams. That uh, you know it, it's it's involved with 
the shape of the political economy, the shape of the sort of world political economy, the, uh, you know, all sorts of different things uh, that are downstream from that. But one thing that strikes me about um, sort of the, the cat and mouse game of like actually regulating on sort of a nitty gritty level, some of these more technologically sophisticated or at least involving technology kinds of scams is that, you know, a big, uh, a big factor in the inability to do that is like the lack of state capacity around technology that like, because of the way that the internet has developed as mostly a private entity, that like the government is not like a sort of a, a big central player in the field of technological development. I mean, famously, you know, there was the Obamacare website, healthcare.gov rollout that was very poorly managed and and poorly engineered and everything. But I mean, you know, uh, the, most of the successes that have come with, uh, you know, information being um, presented on the internet from the government have involved basically like a private shell around a public stream of data. Like, so I think airfares is a good example of that. So my question is basically like, what from your perspective as having, you know, some experience in this field and, and specifically working for the government and everything, what do you think about like the um, sort of atrophied or underdeveloped uh, state capacity around like the tech, the technological arena and how that pertains to its ability, you know, the sort of a public ability to confront some of these problems, either both from like a policy and a technical perspective, but also just, you know, it's basic orientation toward these things. Like it's the basic kind of posture that it has, because it seems to me that it's, it's mostly a defensive posture that sort of concedes that, well, we're not going to be able to, to actually make the thing that fixes the problem. Yeah, no, I mean, this is a, it's a big hobby horse of mine. So you're setting me up for like, a, <laughs> uh, with a, with a, with a softball, I guess, cause I'm always time for like, Jerry's epic rant. No, I, I'm always complaining about this because, uh, this is absolutely true. Uh, but I, I think there's, so I, I guess here's, here's where I would start. Um, there's, there's this notion that I think like is, you know, exists out there, I think in, uh, you know, neolib brain where, it's like, oh, you know, in order for this to be efficient, in order for this to get done on time, whatever, we have to outsource this work to to the private to the you know private actors, which you know functionally means uh, government contractors, which who are not in any real sense like private private actors. They are really just kind of like these these uh, uh, illegitimate extensions, like I would call them illegitimate in the illegitimate child sense uh, of uh, you know of the government right these sort of like uh ghost appendages uh that actually do a lot of this work uh but the problem of course is that their interests are not the interests of the government uh their interests or this of society or anything else their interests are like getting paid um and so there's absolutely zero incentive they, they they're not people who believe in the mission or they might be but there's absolutely no guarantee that they will be um and they will uh they have no incentive to do a good job they have no incentive to uh to, to, and they they also don't have any incentive to leave behind kind of a record of what they've done in, you know, in the sense of like in a less not in the formal sense of like, here is a an invoice for like hours build or whatever, but in the sense of like art, the artifacts that accompany the generation of knowledge. Right. Or the generation of code, uh, which, you know, in, in I think is uh, roughly roughly the same thing in this case. Uh, because so much of that stuff is like it's it's documentation, it's uh, it's uh, technical writing, it's expertise, it's all that stuff, right? Even if you have like a good contractor who comes through and they do the job, 
uh, maybe they're at the door in six months and that knowledge is gone, right? There's, and there's, so there's no institutional technological memory uh, in, a lot of, um, in a lot of government agencies. Uh, you see this, for example, with the IRS, uh, for sure, where they're just woefully under modernized with regard to their capacity to just like do the basic functions that the IRS is supposed to be doing. Like it's just like taxes are way more complicated now than they were way back when. And not only are they under underfunded in terms of their uh, human power, but they're underfunded in terms of tech, their technological capacity. Um, and there just has not been any like... Um, sustained investment in like genuine technical expertise in a lot of uh in a lot of government agencies and so yes absolutely we are seeing that uh in reflected in a lot of um in a lot of the ways in which they are not able to kind of make intelligent use of not, not intelligent use of data to like make their decisions in, in terms of like they're not able to collect the data that they need to collect. They don't have like the expertise to manage it properly, even if they do collect some of it. It's just all that stuff like compounds on itself, right? I mean, there was this, there were these, you know, stories back in like, you know, kind of during the heights of uh, 2001 COVID where uh, all the uh, unemployment money that was kind of going out, it ended up like, breaking like the system you know the the systems of uh various the unemployment like dis systems that handle like the the check distribution and all that of several states among them like new jersey where you think okay like you know new jersey whatever i don't know relatively you know blue state relatively progressive but even places like that just like you know they don't have like all the pieces together that would be necessary to make this work so it's like an endless i think uh source of frustration for me because like there's a lot of technical expertise out there. There's like a lot of very smart people uh, doing like really good work. Uh, and the sad reality of it is that right now, if you have a background in computer science or, you know, just know how to program a computer, like you are going to make a lot, you can make a lot of money like doing extremely stupid antisocial things like building ad tech or building like some stupid, like, you know, SaaS product that nobody really needs. Uh, or, you know, you know, blockchain bullshit, just like any number of things out there that are just, from my perspective, like kind of fairly useless, uh, you know, they're either useless or actively malign, uh, but they get paid a lot of money to do that. And like, if you are some, like, you don't get paid a lot of money to go work in, in government, right? Like you, you can, you can't make like government pay is just like, I mean, it's starting to be better in some places. So my old agency, the CFPB, is actually like they were they put out a blast a couple of weeks ago or maybe a month or two uh, about how like they were hiring people. And, you know, I kind of, you know, because I was curious, I looked and, you know, it was a pretty good it was a pretty good setup. I was, you know, generally fairly competitive with industry. So there are places but those places are very few and far between. Right. Like I had an experience in. Uh, I want to say like 2017 or so. Yeah, 2017 when I was like looking for work and uh, I actually interviewed with the uh, Department of Sanitation of the city of New York. Um, and it was delightful, actually. I had a great time. Um, I talked to their their tech guy and who, who I, whatever, or whatever his job title was. But basically the idea was that they were trying to build a system that would enable them to uh, more optimally route garbage trucks. Like, that's great. That's that's pretty useful. Uh, I don't like garbage. Um, so I would I was like, I would love to help. You know, I'd love to help with this. We had like a good report. 
and they said I like them they like me uh, everything was great and then a couple days after I had my interview um, you know sends me an email basically saying you know what like the city just imposed a hiring freeze and uh, we just we can't uh, you know we really enjoyed uh, talking to you but like we just don't see that there's going to be a way forward through this and I was like okay well you know what can you do right and so I took a different job and I ended up in a different place but like it just, I mean, it's just like one example, but it like, it sucks, right? It sucks because the, all the agencies and institutions that are supposed to be developing this expertise and using it for the public good are just not doing it. Like they're not doing it because they're underfunded. They're not doing it because they're understaffed. They're not doing it. Uh, and yeah, it's just, it results in a, like just an incapacity that even if you want to, um, you just don't have the resources or the knowledge to tackle any of these things because you don't even know where to start right it's like it's it's like it's like putting you know you put a bunch of people in the room you tell them like you know build a spaceship like what are you gonna do right that that's kind of how i view it it's like that so it's definitely definitely a huge problem yeah so i gotta go in a second but i uh was just thinking about you know when you read about these kind of silicon valley startups that you know, burn a huge amount of money to accomplish nothing, you know, as against the public sector doing something productive for societal well-being and not having anywhere near enough resources to carry it out. Um, or, you know, corporations that are like, well, we could do a good job doing whatever it is we titularly do as a company, or we could just mail a ton of buyback checks to our stockholders. Like, you know, there's just, you have to, you know, in order to get like adequate resources behind some sort of initiative, you have to like decorate it with the bunting of capitalism and like shareholder payouts and whatever. And that just means like there's endless amount of money to burn on in Silicon Valley in the hopes that you like one day monopolize the transportation industry or something like that. Um, but you know, there's not endless amount of money to like actually just build a decent public transit system, you know, because that's not going to make the critical people as obscenely rich as they think they deserve to be. Yeah, it's, it's sort of funny how we, we, we got this far without actually mentioning, you know, Uber, which is also a gigantic scam. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I guess we well, talked Mar a lot about it with Sinjukta, so. Yeah. Marshall, what I was, uh, the, sort of the impetus that made me think of this as a, as a topic was I saw this, I saw a tweet, don't remember who sent it, but it basically said like, you know, um, you would become the most popular politician in America if you just ran on like an anti-scam platform. Yeah. And my, my question for you as, you, you know, as sort of your parting salvo here is, you, you know, if you're sort of being the, the George Stigler of anti-scam, <laughs> is it even possible I mean, my theory, basically, having thought about this and going through our conversation today is that, like, actually, it's not really possible to be a true, I mean, you could probably run on being anti-scam, but I don't think that you can actually sort of untie the Gordian knot of all these, uh, of the sort of the political economy and, and the structural factors that make these scams proliferate without, like, violently upsetting, basically, the system that we live under. And, and, and you know, obviously, no one who's running as a Republican or Democrat is very interested in doing that. Uh, but my question is to you. Uh, as someone with a little bit more experience in sort of crafting brilliant, beautiful public policy, um, what would if you if you if somebody brought you on board as the anti-scam guru of their political campaign, what 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 would what is to be done? What would what would you actually have to do in order to get rid of as much of these scams? Whether and maybe you just maybe we just mean the the sort of the the robocalls and the people claiming that they're Jamie Dimon from Chase Bank or you know that kind of stuff. 
or maybe we're actually talking about like, you know, get rid of Uber and Tesla and all these other like, you know, crypto and all these things that are basically like financial pyramid schemes. Uh, what would you do to target as much of this rot and disgusting filth in our system as possible? Oh man, well, I can hardly uh, answer that question as a parting salvo because that's yeah. like uh, a book length di di disquisition. <laughs> I mean, the anti-Stigler I think is a good place to start. Like the premise of Stigler's ideology was that, you know, the, the elements of a regulated economy and you know particularly regulated networked industries um, are in fact protectionism for incumbents. So it's like, okay, we have a say telecommunication system that depends on universal access at reasonable rates and the way that it accomplishes that is through cross subsidization across network routes and the way that you get cross subsidization is by erecting barriers to entry on profitable routes. You know, that whole method of economic regulation Stigler reinterpreted as protectionism for the incumbents and that society would be benefited through the entry of uh, more efficient technologic or technologically sophisticated uh, competitors if we unraveled that entire thing so this is more like what we talked about with Corey where um, uh, you take away you know all the unprofitable routes you enable entry on profitable routes you have you know attenuation of networked um, industries and you know consequently nobody can communicate with anyone else and you're only allowed and you know the eventual outcome is like basically you have to pay for the right to communicate with anybody and the only one who's going to be willing to pay is somebody who's going to make money from doing that um, so my pithy answer to your question is basically to rediscover the sort of public interest regulation uh, mindset or, or paradigm and say like, you know, we used to have a postal service that worked. We used to have a telecommunications infrastructure that worked, not to mention a transportation system. And like, look, these rapacious capitalists plundered it for their own wealth. And consequently, everybody else is suffering the consequences of that. So why don't we try that kind of thing again? So that's my pithy answer. <laughs> With that, I got to go have dinner. <laughs> Oh, yeah, because we, we, we were just talking about, uh, you know, efficient allocation of capital and all that. And I'm sure you've seen the news about how, uh, you know, uh, Mark Andreessen is uh, is giving Adam Newman's like net new uh, whatever it is. It's, I, you know, it's it's hard to even call it like a company. It's uh, just it's some kind of some kind of like stupid gimmick, uh, you know, another 350 million or whatever. And I was like, you just read that and you're like oh, yeah, this whole story about, you know, yeah, efficient allocation of capital. It's like, mm, I, I don't know if I believe that. That doesn't sound right. One thing that I, I, I find uh, just, just incredibly interesting uh, and, and, and perverse, obviously, and, and bad, but uh, is, I feel like we've talked about this before, but but the, the realness of money on a small level and the fakeness of money on a big level. Mm. Uh, what I mean by that is like, of course, your student loans, you know, that's a great example. Like student loans are a very real burden. They really, you know, all, they're almost impossible to divest yourself of, you know, getting them actually forgiven basically requires you to be in a vegetative state as far as I understand it. Um, uh, that is forgiven wholesale rather than through some uh, income-based repayment um, uh, method or whatever. But, you know, when you're talking about, uh, I don't know, Lehman Brothers 
going belly up or you know all these things these things that are like billion trillion dollar too big to fail uh you know boondoggles at the head of the economy or something like tesla for instance which is you know basically a regulatory as far as i can tell just like a, a regulatory scam and in, in speculative like financialized bubble um because they don't they're certainly not really like a car company in the sense they don't make that many cars um but uh you know uh when you have these small debts uh i mean it's it's like the classic thing where it's like you know you owe the owe the bank a million dollars that's your problem you owe the bank a billion dollars that's their problem you know or wh whatever yeah, the numbers yeah. are um money is very very fake and the, you know this is this it, it, it's 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 very hypocritical of people who you know are at these sort of commanding positions or or like thought leadership positions who basically believe it's good that like you know all these uh, big businesses uh, can just sort of you know um, privatize their profit and and socialize their risk you know uh, and and they all coming after these people who are getting a, a pittance of their student loans forgiven or whatever and saying well in this country we pay our debts well of course you know that doesn't apply to it's very hypocritical that it doesn't apply to you know the bigger the debts are that that is like a key component of this to me is the sort of the real the reality of money of debt specifically at low levels and the the fakeness of it and like the fictitiousness and like the complete pie in the sky you know speculative nature of debt at big levels is 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 something that's just fascinating as just a phenomenon and totally counterintuitive to how you think something should work um and it, it the other thing that it kind of makes me wonder is like you know is there a way to do it the other way is there a way to make it so that like you know big debts are important and small debts aren't you know it, it could could this be turned around so that uh you know these these crushing but like relatively small amounts are things that people can pretty easily wiggle out of but like you know these these big uh you, you know debts that come from this this you know mismanagement or malfeasance at the top of the economy like those things are, people are actually you know held to account for them or, or, or forced to you know to, to do something to, to pay for them or whatever i mean well, I, I think I think that what this what this says, right, is that what's the word that I, there's an analogy that I'm trying to reach for and it'll come to me. But it's it's a distinction between sort of the like the the single particle right in a in a in a in a stream or, you know, like a drop of water right in an ocean in an ocean and like the secular movement of like the wave itself. Right. In the sense that things that at like with at large quantities and volumes have kind of a, a logic, a mass logic of their own. And I think this is true about this. This is true for money and it's true for debt where at very high levels, like at levels like so large that they are sort of not really conceivable. I mean, there, we, we put numbers on them, but it's like, I, I, I would argue and I'm, you know, prepared to defend myself on this, on this point that it's like, relatively impossible it's not impossible but it's functionally impossible for somebody to genuinely like conceive of a like a billion dollars like it's it's just like like you can you can name it obviously you can write it down but like i think it's not a number that you like you feel in your bones you know it's like it's an abstract quantity that you just you just write down you're like oh that's a lot that's a big number um and, and and so that that's just that that just speaks to sort of like the scale at which human beings perceive things right at those quantities it takes on a life of its own where you know things like like 
monet these transactions these these debts they're no longer like mechanisms of uh they, they lose their connection to any like specific let's say uh you know i don't want to say moral but like any sort of notion of like morality or justice they're just like numbers right they're numbers on a ledger somewhere and sometimes it's useful for you for those numbers to be higher sometimes it's useful for those numbers to be lower depending on whatever right so so there are times when you find it easier to take on more debt and then that because that debt has a certain like tax advantage structure or whatever like blah 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 right there are billions of these like kind of like examples that one can come up with right but it but when when the game is being played at those levels it's really just like a manipulation of numbers it's like okay well this number goes here and out comes this other number and i like this number better so like that's that's a strategy that i'm going to take right at the like the basic human level it's like if you if you're like capacity to eat is dependent on whether or not you have like a hundred dollars in your check in your bank account like that's visceral right you feel that in a way that you aren't going to feel like you know anything else so that's the um to, you know to me that's kind of like the uh like the distinction there right it's and it's i don't know how you reverse that because it's like those things are um it's just like the the, the scales are so different and you have to get people to like feel like feel something at a, at a level that they're not accustomed to really feeling it right so i don't know <laughs> i don't have a good i don't have like a good answer but i think that that's the phenomenon that we're that we're looking at i think a lot of times people think okay well there's this unmutable there's this like you know immutable human nature that like you know we all sort of it, it, it like persists through time as opposed to of course we're like manufactured by our like social milieu and circumstances and stuff like that and like you know the, the things that are completely naturalized to us would be like completely foreign even to people 100 years ago or something like that um and certainly to people who lived in like different forms of political economy than like sort of you know hyper capitalist techno capitalist whatever you want to call it like you know world that we live in today uh and i you know i think one of the consequences of that is that people who are sort of utopian thinkers they don't understand necessarily that like change like a like a phase shift in consciousness isn't necessarily like you know it's going to happen to everyone who's like alive it's i i see it at least more as like you know you got to like create conditions for different people who come after you to undergo bit by bit you know become slightly different people until they become amenable to things that you hope are like more sort of pro-social and not like, you know, this sort of like hyper-exploitative, disgusting uh, shithole of a world we live in now. Well, one thing that, that struck me actually just to completely change gears is about like there, you can connect a lot of the sort of anti-social things that come out of there being this like constant scam environment to like other anti-social tendencies. Like for instance, I think vaccine skepticism is a, or vaccine hesitancy is a, is something that well, just think about it this way like the vaccine is free what else what what good in our society is free you know there's no, <laughs> nothing nothing there's nothing that's free so there must be something wrong with it you know i think i really do think that like even if people don't state that as their reason like that's like a deep psychology thing is just like how could this possibly be not something that's where someone's trying to get something over on me whenever there's something that's supposedly free someone's always trying to get something over on me and you're telling me this one no 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 this one's just good you know this one's just going to help everyone and we're all going to live in a beautiful covid free paradise once i get this shot 
Are, are you telling are you telling me that uh, Bill Gates, it, you know, doesn't want my uh, to control me with his uh, his microchips? That's ridiculous. I would never believe this. I got to say, like, I'm open to anything at this point. That does seem that specific one seems pretty unlikely. You know, given Bill, Bill Gates's penchant for collecting, you know, uh, foreskins on the African continent and his various, uh, you know, malfeasances involved in our public school system and everything, I wouldn't really put anything past the guy. But like, um, that does seem like a little implausible uh, as a as a particular issue that he's embroiled in but you know um i just uh it, it does i do think that like you know there's something to be said about like i guess maybe to connect this with what i was talking about before you know the idea of like a public goods governance model of you know society or government um it does require a certain kind of acceptance of the idea that like someone out there might be willing to do something good either for you or ideally like with you um you know that in other words either that either because i don't really like the model of government as sort of like a beneficent overlord that like you know gives you these things because you know it sort of looks down on you but it says well you're 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 just a normal person you can't really help the fact that you're sort of depraved and, and in a fallen state or whatever so let me give you this social benefit as a little treat for you or whatever i like the idea that like you know, the person who's in office is ideally like trying to create like a, like a, like some is trying to say to communicate to the people that they're representing that like, I am, you and I are in this together. I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing it with you, that kind of thing. But that maybe that's an unimportant distinction. But I do think that regardless of what the sort of communicative model is here or the sort of representative model of, of public goods governance, in order to get there, you, you, you know, it's difficult. I think it's very difficult now in this country after, you know, 50 years or so of, of you know, basically like selling and parting out uh, the public sphere uh, to, you know, for scammers to, to run rampant in, uh, for people to believe that like, that something good, they really could get something out, out of this that doesn't have a price tag or that doesn't have uh, some kind of hidden cost behind it. Uh, where someone's trying to get something over on you. And, uh, you know, I don't think it's it's quite the matter of just sort of saying, oh, well, here, here's one thing, and then here's another thing. I, that, you know, I, I think that, you know, if you slowly introduce these measures and you get some things through, yeah, you know, people become less skeptical. That That's all fine and good. But, like, I do think that there's a, an initial skepticism that needs to be overcome with that, you know? Yeah, no, I totally, I totally hear you. Like, it's definitely the case that there is an amount of like public trust that just has to be rebuilt. That's not there. Um, yeah. And, and uh, I, I think it's in, in a, you know, in many ways it's um, I think even on the left, there's like kind of this deficit of not necessarily like, I don't know what to call it. There's a lot of energy that's going into, um, you know, all kinds of organizing and, uh, union activity and stuff like that. And that's great. I think that's awesome. Um, but I also think that like, ultimately you have to kind of look at, okay, well, is the point here to kind of eke out a slightly larger slice of the pie for yourself? Or is the point to like take power and change things like for everybody? Right. And I feel like in many ways, um, 
you know, the left is waking up from maybe, I don't know, maybe some people on the left are waking up from a very long period of uh, skepticism about that proposition. Right. And there's still a lot of people who I think like, are maybe sympathetic to it, but are kind of skeptical that that's the path forward. And I just kind of think like, I don't know, to me, maybe I'm a bit of a simpleton on this one, but like, I just kind of think like, yeah, you gotta, you have to have a plan that involves actually like convincing people that you are going to fix things and then you have to like actually do the fixing. Right. It's like, it's all these other things are also very good. Right. Like, I mean, you know, God knows, like, uh, you know, my fingers crossed for every union vote, like by all means, that's, that's great. But yeah, I don't, I don't know that these purely local efforts are sufficient in and of themselves to, to bring these changes about again, not a statement on their like worthiness or, or not just a question of like, where are the levers of power? And if you, if you want like the kind of change, I think that, you know, Marshall was talking about where you really do have like a system that, you know, a, a governance of uh, public goods governance, right? If you really want that, then you have to actually have, you have to be governing, right? Like you can't, you can't be, you can't be in perpetual opposition. Well, and you know, the, the other thing I, I was trying to kind of get at before is I don't think you can also sort of be like this cast Sunstein, like we're trying to nudge people to be organ donors by changing this checkbox to a default instead of that one. Or, you know, we're trying to make people make healthier decisions. So we've banned big gulps or, you know, that kind of stuff where it's like you're, you're operating sort of as, you know, basically like a, uh, the, the owner of like a, some kind of malleable castings firm in like, you know, Blackpool, London, and like the, the 19th century where you're like, my, my employees will get the best calisthenic workout because it's for their own good, you know, like that kind of thing. I don't think that that really works uh, because really what you're trying to do is you're trying to say like, I am a representative of you, but we are working together in a project as opposed to like, I am your better. I'm in this position because I'm more educated. I went to, I have more Harvard degrees than you do. And therefore, I kind of know what's best for you. And what's best for you is for you to take this goddamn shot. Or what's best for you is for you to mark this goddamn box. Or what's best for you is to not drink this goddamn soda, you know? And uh, I think people are rightly skeptical of that model of governance, which basically just is, you know, it's like a bunch of people who all knew Jeffrey Epstein, like conspiring together to tell you what's best for you. And nobody likes that. So, um, you know, I, so uh, in that, to that degree, I'm a little, you know, I, I think that there's like a, you know, there, there's problems with messaging with certain, like I, th I thought, for instance, like the, the, the Corbin campaign, like the second one, I don't remember, I can't remember exactly what their slogan was, but it was sort of like, we're going to do this for your, for, for your good, you know, it was, that was kind of the message of whatever their marketing was. Um, which I don't think is quite the right message. I think, you know, the, the Bernie sort of not me, us, not me, us is a little bit better. But basically something that indicates like, and it's not just a branding thing, obviously, it's a real, you know, you really got to mean it and follow through on it. But I do think that like the messaging is important too. But like, you know, basically the messaging and the and the the, the uh, intention being like, we're doing this not because I, I know what's right for you, but because we all know what's what we all want, you know? And I, I mean, unfortunately, I think that there's a lot of tendencies in sort of the fractured American like left to the extent such a thing exists that 
are a little bit more insular than that, 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 you know, are looking for ways to basically say, well, these people are not the people we really want to be dealing with because they're bad for some, you know, they're racist or, you know, whatever. And it's like, you know, unfortunately, if you're going to be doing public goods governance, you know, public goods means that racists get to use your goods too. Like, that's just, you just have to deal with that. Racists get insurance if you have national insurance, you know, sexists get insurance if you have national insurance. And that's a real, you know, you can see like a future sort of Hillary Clinton person being like, well, I don't want Donald Trump's kids to do, you know, like just with public public college or whatever. And you just make yourself so vulnerable to that when you're, when your whole, you know, political ideas based on exclusion like that, you know? Well, this is the thing Sorry, that I was, no, I, this is the thing that I was uh, started off with because I was saying that like, if you just view kind of like, if you view governance in just these purely egotistical terms, right, uh, then the the inverse of saying like okay well government exists to give to tell me that i'm right and good and give me treats is that like government also exists to punish the people that i think are bad and to to make them you know to slap them on the wrist or put them in prison or whatever to you know shake their finger at them right so it's a pure it's just it's this notion of governance as like this purely moralistic like endeavor uh which again is like it's not to say that governance doesn't have a moral component it, it obviously does but it's just to, it's just to say that like if you view everything in these kind of personal terms where it's really like about like okay you know punishing this person because they did the bad thing or rewarding this person because they did the good thing then you are not thinking about you're not thinking enough about how is the thing itself organized right because the, the goal should be to organize, like, the thing in such a way that, like, just people derive more material benefit from them. And, yeah, sometimes that obviously does involve, like, punishing people who do bad things, right? Like, you know, whether you could, you could talk about whether you think, you know, whatever, the police, the, the carceral state is the right mechanism for this. But I think that this fairly, like... Uh, there are other ways of like sanctioning people for for being for doing bad right but like you want to sanction them not because like you are passing judgment you're like on their specific morality like in an individual sense but you want to sanction them because like sanctioning people for doing antisocial things is like itself like maintains a certain amount of like social cohesion that makes it possible to get things done and I think that this story, you know, part of the story with COVID is that like, yeah, if you undermine that cohesion and you undermine any sense of like legitimately acquired authority. And by this, I don't mean authority to tell people what to do, but authority that comes from like just the from having knowledge. Right. Like people who are like doctors or scientists, like they're telling you like, hey, this is a good idea. Right. They are. I mean, this stuff always gets hashed out in public and in, and in journals and whatnot. But like there is some amount of authority and knowledge and understanding behind it. And it's like the fact that all of these things are like unraveling. Right. It, this is just another symptom of it, because if you can't trust that authority. Right. If, if, if every every everything is like just a question of pure self-interest and you can't trust the, that authority and then that person comes comes along and says, oh, well, you know, actually we need to, you know, yeah, you do need to take the shot, right? Like this is actually important for like the epidemiological uh, situation in America right now because of COVID. Or we need to like put a whole bunch of like 
regulatory barriers in front of people being able to uh, send you, you know, spam emails or scam you out of your money or whatever, right? Like the natural response is like, oh, like how dare you come and tell me what to do, right? Because all like, you know, the messaging for the last, you know, half a century, if not more, has been that like, actually nobody, you know, nobody should be allowed to tell you what to do. And also like, in fact, you should be telling everybody else what to do, uh, you know, <laughs> and, and also that like, um, you know, anybody who's telling you what to do is like inherently like looking down on you or whatever. And it's just like, no, like if you, if you step beyond that, it's just a question of like, okay, like, do you, or do you not accept that it would be better for fewer people to die of COVID? And if you do, then like, the answer is that you got it. You got to get people vaccinated, right? Or like, do you think it's good for people to be like, in general, do you think it's good for society for people to be scammed out of their money? Like, I don't think that's good. And so I proceed from, from that to like the, the statement that there are people who understand a lot about how to like organize things so that that doesn't happen. But if you can't like make that leap, if everything is viewed in just these purely atomistic terms about like how it relates to you specifically, uh, then yeah, then it's a very hard barrier to overcome because you're always saying you're always thinking like oh like how are these people like how are these people gonna fuck me over right and like you know and the idea that somebody might be there not to fuck you over but just to like make things better is is just you know it reads as anathema. Yeah, totally. And I mean, you know, I, I think Matt Christman has talked about this a lot, but you know, like sort of the the ability like the the atrophied ability of like the state to do anything and like the atrophied legitimacy of it to compel anything and we've talked about this before on the podcast too how like the covid response falls perfectly into this hole between those two things you know the state does not have the legitimacy to persuade and it does not have the capacity to force yeah so you absolutely get, you, you got, that's a good you got formulation you got. yep and, yeah i totally agree uh, but what politics does still have and maybe the only thing that it that it truly has is the ability to harm the person you don't like. <laughs> and I think that that fits very nicely with what you're talking about because, you know, um, it, it, you don't get to the question of, well, would it be better for fewer people to die of COVID if your overriding concern is like, what will make the people that I don't like the most upset? What will like have the biggest impact on, you know, owning the libs in the instance of, uh, you know, um, the anti-vaxxers or whatever, uh, or in the, inst in the instance of liberals, like, you know, how, how do we, uh, get, you know, take down these MAGA chuds who did January 6th or whatever. And it's like, you know, obviously I feel I'm a little more sympathetic toward one of those things than the other. Uh, although, you know, I do, I actually think that the libs could stand to be owned, uh, you know, from other perspectives, uh, a little bit more than they sometimes are, but, uh, I think that's really the valence on which sort of our political system operates now uh, because, you know, it's so, it's so like completely like the gears are just so gummed up about like doing, doing stuff. And I get, you know, give, give Biden some credit because he's been, he's actually been, you know, out there doing things for the last like month or so that it, I wouldn't say that like any of them is like, Oh my God, you know, best president since FDR kind of thing. But like, to me, the amount of things that that have happened that I'm kind of sitting back and going, oh, okay, you know, all right, credit where credit's due, has definitely been like much higher than I expected over the course of the last week, and it just seems like he's a little, he's like kind of on a roll, and uh, you know, maybe we'll get some more interesting things 
going into uh, you know the midterms or whatever. I that that kind of stuff. I don't really care that much about it in the sense that like I don't follow the daily stories about like what kind of legislation is getting passed, and so I'm just kind of like pleasantly surprised or like yeah. I, that's kind of what I figured if something doesn't happen, you know, I'm pleasantly surprised if it does and like, eh, that typical if it doesn't, you know? <laughs> well, I guess just the, the, the fact that like politics, you know, in the absence of being able to do things, it does still have the capacity to sort of rile up or punish the people you don't like. And, you, you know, like that has replaced a lot of what you would consider to be sort of like pro-social or pro like, or like collective decision-making or like, you know, public goods governance or, you know, just governance of the idea of like benefiting a wide swath of people is, you know, we've seen for the last 15 years, at least that that's, that just doesn't really happen. And, uh, but what does happen is that, you know, somebody does something, somebody gets elected and someone else is just livid and triggered and, you know, disgusted and like, it makes them upset and they post about it. And then, you know, and like this whole sort of emotional cycle gets perpetuated. And that's kind of what politics has turned into to a large degree, but we'll see. I mean, you know, there, there are some movements the other, in the other way in the last, even just in the last month or so. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I would, I would say this though. I, I think that I, I think it makes sense in many situations to sort of like divorce. I mean, people like, like, like to say that the, you know, the, the personal is political and often it is. Uh, but there are also sometimes when it's useful to like divorce the personal from the political in the sense that like there are definitely things that happen where I mean, student, the, the student loan forgiveness EO is kind of like a great uh, example for me because uh, all of the right people were super mad about it. And I just like, you know, who knows whether this will hold up in court, whatever. But just seeing like, you know, Jason Furman, like wring his hands, uh, you know, on Twitter, I was like, you know. I take pleasure in that. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, uh, I'm not too too big, too proud. You know, too too much of a uh, you know bodhisattva uh, divorced from from my uh, you know desires uh, to uh, not take some pleasure in uh, you know my my uh, ideological opponents being owned. Uh, but at the same time, like I think you should confine that pleasure to like a personal feeling right it's fine to feel that like it's it's fine to feel whatever it is that you feel uh you know your, your feelings are valid but but you shouldn't make them the uh the center point of like all public policy right like ultimately like the reason why this is good is not because you know it owns jason Furman. it's it's good because it's good on, like on its own terms and the uh you know the fact that like uh, you know, odious people don't like it is like an additional frisson, but it's uh, it, it does not justify the policy itself. So I guess that's that's how I would put it. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree. And I mean, yeah, I, I probably I honestly don't take that much pleasure in like seeing other people get owned. It's I find it funny. You know, I, I do legitimately like have get get enjoyment from watching people like be owned on just like a comedic level. But like it doesn't really do a lot for me. I'm like a yes, you know, finally the person that, you know, I, I have achieved, I have achieved some sort of bodhisattva nature with my uh, ability to sort of um, not put a lot of stake in like how things make other people feel, I guess. Uh, I, I do, like I said, I do enjoy how it makes me feel when it makes me, when it's, when it's funny, but um, 
and I don't, it's not like I'm looking down on the, on people who feel that way too, because it is kind of like the last, one of the last things that like politics can do for us. And, and, you know, I appreciate that. Um, what I was going to say, I guess what I was going to say too, is like, you know, with the student loan cancellation, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to raise this point too much with Marshall not here because I, I don't want to sound like I'm like attacking it as a, as a proposal, because I really do have a lot. I mean, I, you know, I just, I know so many people who've been so devastated by their student loan balances and, you know, I, it makes me really sad to see like, I mean, I remember one time Marshall showed me this graph that was like family formation on one axis and like amount of student loans on the other. And it was like, people just don't have kids when they have a bunch of student debt. And that's just sad because you know that they want to. There's no, you know, they're just normal people just like everyone else. And, you know, like that honestly like brings a tear to my eye. It's really, it's really sad, especially because I know people who, who had that experience, you know? And, um, but you know, I, one thing about student loan uh, forgiveness is that it is a policy about people who went to college. And of course, not everybody went to college. And so, you know, one thing that I think is important as we're talking about like, you know, public goods governance and like sort of universal benefits and things that really do, you know, benefit everyone. I mean, student loan repayment does not benefit everyone. That's just a baseline fact of it. And so I don't think, you know, even if, uh, obviously this is just a limited measure and, you know, doesn't do a lot of good for a lot of, for a lot of people, the forgiveness part doesn't do a lot of good for people who have high student loan balances. The IBR part is, is more important for them, but, um, you know, acting like this is some kind of great win for a universal program. It's really not, you know, it's a, it's a, it's, you know, cynically, the, if you're the most cynical way of looking at it is basically like, this is paying people who are more likely to be Democrats than not. And, um, you know, I have nothing, I have nothing against that. And I think it works to the benefit of, you know, so many people who really need that benefit. So to that degree, I, I have no problem with it, but I do think, I mean, I, I have less than no problem with it. I think it's one of the best things that, you know, that this administration has done. But I also think that, you, you know, it needs to be understood that this is not like, this is inadequate to the goal of public goods governance or whatever you want to call it, universal programs. And, uh, you know, that there are going to be some people who are upset because they're excluded from it because they didn't go to college. And like, there's actually something kind of legitimate about that, you know, um, because, you know, people should have the expectation and we should want people to have the expectation that the government is working for them with them. And, you know, this, for a lot of people, this is not something that works for them or with them. And that's just a fact. So, uh, you know, that's kind of far afield from, it's, it, it ties us back to where we started, but it's maybe not in line with the scam stuff. But, um, you know, I guess, I guess, I guess, you know, to tie it in with the scam stuff though, you have to understand that like sometimes victims of scams and student loans are a scam. <laughs> they're an institutionalized scam, but they're a scam. Sometimes require special dispensation to, uh, you know, in light of that status and that we can't, you know, we can't expect that everyone is going to be treated ultimately like completely the same if some people fell victim to a scam and some people didn't. Just like we can't expect that, every, you know, that, you know, people, benefits that are supposed to go to poor people are going to go to everyone or, you know, whatever the case is. So, um, you know, understanding that, like, you know, effective governance that, that actually does things for people, it doesn't just do things for everyone. It does sometimes do things to remedy someone who is harmed by something or someone who's in a special circumstance that doesn't apply to everybody. And that's fine too. It's just understanding that like that's, it can't just do that. Um, yeah, I yeah. think it's important. Yeah. 
Right, right. I mean, that that's the, uh, to me, that's kind of the squaring of the circle that happens um, in, in a, that would happen in a sort of a system, again, that was sort of genuinely, genuinely dedicated to, uh, you know, public goods governance. Um, and this is like kind of this critique that I think a lot of people who are opposed to, let's say, student loan cancellation uh, will will level dishonestly, I think, where they say, well, this doesn't fix like the fundamental problem of college cost. And it's like a, a statement that in a formal sense is true. Like, I mean, you know, bracketing for the moment what Marshall said about like what, you know, where what directions the political pressure comes from. Um, like it is true that it does not fix like the underlying problem that, that caused the crisis or one of one of the underlying problems that caused the crisis in the first place. However, like it's also true that those people aren't interested in fixing the problem because the real problem is that higher education is just like extremely inaccessible to a large number of people. And, uh, you know, whether whether you like it or not, uh, whether you chalk it up to credentialism and I know Marshall would if he were here uh, or, you know, in some to some degree, the complexity of like modern the modern economy or it, to another degree, just the fact that like education is a good in and of itself. Right. Like it would be good for people to be able to get access higher education, like without having to, you know, put themselves in massive amounts of debt for it right and so like a, a system that you know genuinely was interested in again like governing for a public good would like square that circle by making higher education free just as we've done with like we've had free higher education in this country before we have free higher uh second primary and secondary education um and for now. that for now for now so far uh, I hope it lasts until my my kid is uh, <laughs> is out of high school, um, but like yeah, we we have that system and it, like you know that system has has you know some drawbacks of course, but it has worked you know quite well I think in 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 a broad sense, um, and uh, yeah that would be the correct answer here. It's just to like make the whole thing free. I mean yes, it would obviously uh, undermine in many ways the kind of the business model uh, if you want to call it that of many colleges but that's okay i don't care uh you know i'm not here to like i don't i don't think the job of like you know the federal government should be to protect the phony baloney jobs of college presidents so i'm okay with that um and like yeah that's that's what you would do right if you're genuinely like kind of willing to go full bore and really fix the problem uh, but yeah, I think it's it, it, it. I understand. I understand the statement because it does feel like it is it is going to be transformative for, for millions, possibly tens of millions of people. But at the same time, it's like if you look at the effort and that that's been required to like get this, it's like, oh, man, we're like pulling teeth for just pittances like circus peanuts, uh, really, compared to what we could have. Uh, but yeah, getting um getting the full package is just like very very difficult because there's so little political will for it um i mean right like the community college thing in, in retrospect is sort of like the, the perfect like foil to this because it's like okay well community college that's like the that educate like the community colleges educate so many people and they're uh relatively cheap but it would not cost very much money to make community college free and accessible for everybody and yet like we couldn't even do that so uh yeah as always, uh, in the end, everything is extremely frustrating. Yeah, well, you know, that, that's that's an interesting thing about, you know, the scam model 
of higher education is different than the scam model of a lot of these other scams, because a lot of the other ones are sort of casting a wide net for a small number of dupes, basically. Uh, you know, you send millions of emails and a couple people give you their passwords or whatever, and then you might get, you know, some money out of that or something. Or, you know, even with crypto, it's, you know, I'm sure millions of people own, bought crypto, and I'm sure a lot of people got, you know, taken for a ride uh, as sort of the, the people holding the bag and the most recent collapse of that and everything. But, you know, higher, higher ed is sort of the ur scam because it was, it's based on like forcing you through this gate if you, you know, want to get to certain um, you know, jobs or like life courses, basically. It's set, it, it basically creates this toll booth and then it makes you pass through it if you want, um, you know, almost any job basically. So, uh, and that that is fundamentally different than these other ones. Um, you know, the only scam that I can think of that's kind of similar to it is like the, um, the pre-2008 housing scam, you know, because much like with uh, you know college graduation, home ownership was held to be like the ultimate, always pub, you know it's always in the public interest. It's always good for you to own a home. It's always good for you to go to college. So therefore, you should be willing to like accept any deal that gets you there because any deal is better than not participating in this. And then you know all these more and more exotic scams arise to take advantage of that sentiment, and then people find themselves in very vulnerable positions financially based on decisions that they were told would always work out. Um, and I, I would guess that like the, the you know, peak home ownership rates are fairly similar to, to, you know, peaking, you know, higher education rates. Probably more people go to college than owned a home pre-2008, but I, I would guess it's, it, it's at least on a similar order of magnitude on like these other scams where it's like, you know, very tiny percentages of the population respond to, you know, get, get their identity stolen or, you know, respond to spam emails or click on the wrong thing. And, you know, even, yeah, like crypto, very few people participate in that, even though a lot of people do, but it's a single, single digit percentage, probably. Yeah. I mean, at, at the end of the day, right, it's like the scam really becomes powerful when it manages to institutionalize itself. And I think a second point that we didn't really touch on, but that's worth mentioning, is that it becomes really powerful when you can convert many of the people who have been scammed into advocates for the scam, right? Because this is kind of a classic mode in which like, you know, MLM, for example, operates. Uh, and, you know, there's a, uh, you know, the real heads know the uh, classic uh, Irving Goffman uh, essay uh, called On Cooling the Mark Out, right? And uh, I don't know if people have read this, but it's like a, it's like, it's, it's very short. Um, and it's about kind of, how con men operate but in principle i think this generalizes to uh, institutions as well where you know they uh the the thing that like drives a lot of the sentiment that drives people to take the position of the you know to essentially so take the side of the con man in the in in, in this uh uh, you know, despite the fact that they've been conned is that they are ashamed, right? Like it's, it is shameful to have been duped, right? It's shameful to have fallen for the, the crypto, like uh, the, the bogus, you know, crypto uh, sales pitches. It, and in some sense, it's shameful to have like, I mean, people feel, and I shouldn't say it is shameful. People feel a sense of shame uh, about, you know, let's say buying into this model of either home ownership or, or higher education, uh, and uh, then finding out that the, the that the what they've been sold is you know like just just 
uh, an empty an empty promise essentially right the, like and and so one of the just psychological like moves that people make to reconcile the shame with their own like uh you know their own <laughs> uh I, I guess to resolve the cognitive dissonance that results from this uh this shameful feeling is that you you take the side of the scam right you say no actually this actually it was good that this happened and even though like you know i i ate shit because of this uh it was still good that like it's a good idea for this to, to be the case or you see a lot of people saying like well i you know i paid off my loans and blah 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 like yeah that sucks man like i feel you <laughs> like it sucks that you had all these loans that you had to pay off and it's uh yeah it's just like you shouldn't have had that right like that's the correct answer here is like you shouldn't have had to do this uh it's not like it's the, the injustice was in you having to do this in the first place it's not in fixing the problem for other people who are in that situation so yeah right that, so. well and it's sort of like what you said you know where it's like people try to convince themselves it's a good thing you know people try to convince themselves, oh, you know, the reason I have such good work ethic is because I had to pay off these loans, or, you know, the reason that I, you know, my grind set is through the roof is, is because I, you know, had to hustle in my 20s to figure out how to pay off these loans. And then, you know, that made me the brilliant Federalist blogger that I am today or whatever, you know. <laughs> None of those people have ever had student loans, come on. Well, you know, I'm sure some of them did, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it, I think a lot of people were in this in the situation that I was in, where it's like you have a you have the student debts, you know that your family can provide a financial backstop if you really need it, and so you're kind of living, you know, you feel obligated. At least I felt obligated to, you know, pay my. I mean, it was possible for me to pay my student debts to begin with because I was, you know, I I made not the worst decisions about like where to go to college and stuff like that. But I also kind of understood that like. And we don't have to air this part because it's not interesting, but like, I, I understood that like there were two options for student loans, which is you pay them as quickly as possible or as slowly as possible. There's no in between. And I decided, well, it's possible. I, I believe that it, I am capable of paying these as quickly as possible. And that's luckily that worked out. So, um, and I think I was done with them in about a year after I left, which, you know, considering that they were I don't know, probably about $30,000 or something was not insignificant to me at the time because I didn't make a lot, you know, I made $60,000 that year or something. But, um, but anyways, uh, you know, I think a lot of people go through that style of student loans where they're like, because the reason I could do that is because I knew that if I, you know, had a big hospital bill or if my car broke down or something that I could always go to my parents and be like, look, I need to borrow some money to fix this. And I, I don't have any right now because I've been using it all to pay my student loans as quickly as possible. But I knew that that was a possibility, you know, and I luckily I didn't really have to do that either. But like, you know, it was that was always there as like a backstop for me. So and I think that a lot of people who are in the circumstance of, you know. Like. You know, my parents made decent money, but they weren't like rich enough to pay for all my college, but they weren't poor enough for me to get any like need based scholarships either, you know, so it's like kind of just in the middle where you end up kind of having to pay for anything that you don't get as like some kind of merit scholarship like that. That is a, a, a common position for people to be in, I think, and that, you, you know, you're, you're more fortunate than somebody who's maybe less well off who ends up with the same amount of student loans, obviously, but like. It, you're still, I mean, it's still a difficult position to be in, even if you're, even if you're relatively privileged. And I think, you know, um, 
I do think that there's a little bit of the way that people talk about uh, people who did sort of like pay off their loans and everything um, is a little alienating to those people. I mean, a lot of times it's like people who you want to alienate anyway. So it's not that I'm not saying it's like some sort of political discourse travesty that people do this, but like, you know, you, you got to understand, like, I do think that these people legitimately have, like, they really believe that like they did have to like work really hard to pay off these student loans. And they probably did on some level. It's just, it's not quite the same as like a first generation college student who doesn't have any financial backstop. Who's like, you know, either pays them off the same, either does pay them off in, using similar strategies or doesn't pay them off because they just don't have the, like, maybe they have kids or maybe they have, uh, you know, spiraling payments for other debts or something like that. I mean, that's just much more common than um, the lower you go down the, the economic scale, obviously. So. All right. I think I have to call it because uh, it's getting late over here.